Would you pray with me? God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, prepare our hearts and minds for this season of Advent. Give us the patience needed for the waiting. As we look forward to your earthly arrival, be at work in our lives, transforming us more and more into the likeness of your Son. Open our ears to what you would have us learn this morning, and guide my words so that I will only say what is good and true and life-giving for all of your beloved children. We give you this time. We give you everything. Amen. I've been thinking a lot about promises lately, how we hold them, what we mean by them, who we make them to, and when we hope that they will come true. Promises are just words, but they are also much more. A verbal agreement, a marker of intimacy, a spoken commitment, a bond that we cling to when times get tough. Promises tell us about ourselves, the things that we value, the things that we prioritize, our hopes for the future. Promises can reveal our deeper selves, our worries, our fears, our most hidden desires. We all make promises to ourselves, to each other, to God. I promise myself that I'll actually eat the spinach I buy at Trader Joe's every week that sits forgotten every week, wilting at the bottom of my crisper. I promise my friends that I will keep their secrets, that I will hold their truths and their wounds with tenderness and confidentiality, because those relationships matter to me. I promise God that if my car can just make it through six more months, I will be forever grateful, and I will never swear in traffic ever again. We make promises that we intend to keep, but some that we end up breaking. We promise to be home for dinner, but work needs us to stay late. We promise to be on our best behavior for Thanksgiving dinner at our family's house, but then we get in a screaming match with our crazy racist uncle. Just me? Okay. We've learned not to trust politicians or promises made on the campaign trail because those promises often come up empty so we don't get our hopes up. We know that if we really mean it, we'll pinky promise because it's the law. Those cannot be broken. When we promise things to each other, we sometimes call those vows. We all know what it means to stand up in a court of law and swear an oath, or to stand hand in hand with the one that you love 
and declare in front of family and friends that you intend to be faithful to each other until death do you part. Last week, Pastor Ellie taught us about covenants, literally cut into the bodies of animal sacrifices, promises made in blood. Like marriage, these are sacred promises, holy moments and spaces. Today, our text from Jeremiah tells us about another kind of promise, a prophetic one, a promise made by the prophet to God's people in Judah. Jeremiah, the son of a priest, begins his ministry in Judah before King Josiah begins the reforms that we heard about last week. He witnessed the renewed commitment to God that brought peace and justice to a formerly fractured nation. He championed the covenant that reunited the people of Judah with their God. Jeremiah praises King Josiah and these efforts and preaches in support of this faithful monarchy in both his own text and in the Book of Kings, possibly written after Josiah's death. However, Josiah's reign did come to an end and Jeremiah continued his ministry under four other kings, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Each of these kings repeals Josiah's religious changes, returning to the idolatry and unjust economic practices of their ancestors, like the corrupt king Manasseh. And as the political, social, and spiritual landscape of Judah changes, Jeremiah prophesies that the end of the monarchy and the destruction of Judah as a nation is near. These prophecies come true during his own lifetime. By the 33rd chapter of Jeremiah's text, he has survived multiple assassination attempts, and is later imprisoned for speaking out against Zedekiah and his return to the old ways. Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet, not only because he is persecuted for his work, but because he laments that his message for God's people is often a scathing critique, a heavy burden to bear, a word of bitterness. From his name, we get the English word Jeremiad, meaning a deep and painful lament. In today's passage from verses 14 through 18, which we read together, Jeremiah writes, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, 
David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to make grain offerings, and to make sacrifices for all time. I want us to hear the dual message of Jeremiah's prophecy because it reveals the true nature of the word promise. From the Hebrew, the word for promise here is a complicated one. Promise is usually translated positively, meaning a good word, or as we might say, a gospel. But it can also be translated negatively as a bitter word, a necessary challenge. Jeremiah's promise is a double-edged sword, both a prophecy and a warning. He promises that someday Judah will have a righteous and eternal king, a descendant of the line of David, which is good news if you are poor and exploited by the current monarchy but probably bad news if you sit on the throne. Jeremiah promises an end to idolatry, which is really good news for the children being sacrificed to other gods, but bad news for the corrupt priests who participated in those practices. Jeremiah promises peace and safety, which is good news if you are marginalized or persecuted. But it is bad news if you make your living creating war and danger. Jeremiah promises not just a restored people, but also a restored land, an echo of God's gift of the promised land to the liberated Israelites. This is certainly good news if you are enslaved or if your land has been destroyed. But it is bad news if you are holding others captive or burning vineyards to the ground. Jeremiah's audience would have understood this promise both as the ultimate hope and the ultimate threat. It is a profound critique and a profound hope. Combined with Jeremiah's other prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem, it should inspire healthy fear, and yet also an acute sense of courage, a belief that no matter how difficult things get, restoration is not only possible, but promised. Jeremiah's hope for a new Israel, a new king, a restored land, isn't born out of naive idealism or Pollyanna-ish rose-tinted glasses, though. Jeremiah's promise rises out of the ashes of real destruction, real upheaval, and real despair. In 587 BCE, the Babylonians complete their conquest of Judah after a series of Judean revolts, and the exile officially begins. Jeremiah witnessed the desecration of Solomon's temple, the total defeat of the Judean army, and the removal of God's people from the promised land. 
He has seen promises made, covenants cut, commitments broken, hearts hardened, God's protection given and revoked. He has seen reforms and renewal, but he's seen how the next generation has a short memory that quickly ruins any progress towards peace and justice. In spite of it all, or or perhaps because of it, Jeremiah shares this new promise from God with God's wayward people. Now we have the benefit of hindsight. So when we read our Bible today and we hear Jeremiah's words of hope, our mind automatically connects this passage to the birth and coming of Jesus. We make that logical jump because we as a community are conditioned to see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, it isn't wrong to believe that Jeremiah's prophecies foretell Jesus' arrival. After all, some of our gospel writers explicitly use language that ties together passages like this one from the Old Testament to the first century experience of Jesus. The introduction to the Gospel of Matthew literally gives an account of Jesus' ancestry, chronicling each and every generation that led to Mary and Joseph, proof of a royal bloodline of the house of David. The passage we heard from Mark's Gospel this morning names Jesus as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One for whom Israel waits. It is easy for us to say that Jesus has fulfilled Jeremiah's promise. It makes sense to us that our gospel writers can point to the prophet's bitter and yet hopeful words. But I think in our haste to connect our Old and New Testaments, we fail to understand just how long this waiting period was. The words of the prophet Jeremiah stand alone for almost 600 years. Six centuries of exile. Six centuries of a ruined homeland. Six centuries of rebuilding a temple from the ground up. Six centuries of more invasions and occupations. Six centuries of more revolts and reforms. Six centuries it took to regrow the vineyards of Israel. Six centuries of a few good kings and many more bad ones. Between Jeremiah and Jesus, is approximately 30 generations. That is, thousands of fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. You can ask yourself, would you hold on to a promise for 30 generations? Would you remember the words of a prophet who lived half a dozen centuries before your birth?
Would you believe in a promise, even if you knew it wouldn't come true, until the lifetime of your 30th great-grandchild? Would you watch for a sign of this eternal king as cities and nations rise and fall, as dynasties come and go, as your people are exiled, dispersed, and reconciled? Would you believe in a promise made to people who lived before Martin Luther and John Calvin? Would you believe in a promise made to people before the arrival of the printing press? That is what we are looking at here. Six hundred years. How long would you wait? How long would your community wait? If you've celebrated Advent before, you know that waiting is kind of the whole point. We wait in expectation of the promised Messiah. We wait in anticipation of God's coming kingdom. We wait, sometimes patiently and sometimes not, for the arrival of our King who will make all things new and all things right. Our waiting is a little bit easier because we know that the promise has already come true. But imagine waiting, generation after generation, never knowing if you'd live to see it. Imagine waiting in Babylon. Imagine waiting in a Jerusalem conquered by the Romans. Imagine waiting as a slave. Imagine waiting in soul-crushing poverty. Imagine waiting for this long-awaited promise. Besides being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus makes another promise before his death and resurrection. He promises to once again live among us, a second coming. The church has been waiting for Jesus' return for about 20 centuries now. It is possible that as many as 100 generations have come and gone in that time. And still we cling to our belief that Jesus' promise is true. Still we believe, and still we trust. In our own lives, we wait for other things too. We wait for diagnoses and treatment, often fearing the worst. We wait for new opportunities and paths forward, feeling the weight of the uncertainty. We wait for new babies to be born, so much cause for celebration. We wait for parking spaces in Trader Joe's parking lots, our patients wearing thin. We wait for vacations, longing for rest and a break from the rapid pace of our lives. 
whatever you are waiting for this Advent season, I hope that you can hold on to Jeremiah and Jesus' long-awaited promises. If waiting is hard for you right now, and you feel anxious or restless or confused or straight-up scared, I hope that you can cling to our trustworthy God. The people of Judah and the people of every century since know your pain, and you are not alone. I don't listen to a lot of popular worship music these days, but there's been a song playing in my head for a few weeks now. It's called Waymaker. You may have heard of it. The chorus goes, You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. That is who our God is. Our God is a promise keeper. The promise that Jeremiah delivers, the promise that is passed down from generation to generation, we know that God keeps God's promises. If our God is a promise keeper, and I am here today to tell you that God is, then we can rest safe and secure because we know that all of God's promises will come true and that Jesus will return once again to complete the good work that he began. Whether it was a promise made yesterday or a promise made centuries ago, we can trust that God doesn't forget. Whether it's a new promise or a long-awaited one, we can trust that God doesn't give up. Whether it is a promise to heal your heart or to rescue the whole world, we can trust that if God promised it, God will deliver it. And while we wait in sometimes tough circumstances that feel beyond our control, or in times of upheaval and despair, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, generations of saints, the ancestors of faith, whose prayers join our own. Even as we wait, our voices and songs blend together, echoing together our trust in that challenging, reconciling, bitter, and yet hopeful, long-awaited promise. Amen.